guess it's a good thing that it's uh, harder and harder to preach to Christ to you too, Alan. <laughs> well, the peace of Christ to you too, Cedric. <laughs> well, today we... Uh, um, enter into the third of uh, our series as we're looking at the enemy yeah? and the Im- importance of, of uh, being able to, to know our enemy, know what we're fighting against, know who we're fighting against and what the enemy does to try to attack us. Uh, but our focus today is how the, the, the enemy ultimately has already been defeated. I mean, that God is victorious over evil. And then even in our lives, as we face temptation, as we face disease, and even death, and all that is evil, we know those are just tactics of the evil one who has been defeated. That the love of God in Jesus Christ is already victorious. And His kingdom reigns in us today. And we're going to look at just how we see that that Jesus has defeated the enemy, defeated temptation, defeated even um, death and disease. And we're going to take a look at, at why, though, we still face that temptation. Why we still face disease and death. I mean, why, if they're defeated, why are they still here? How come they're not totally gone away? And then we'll look finally at how that enemy has been defeated in one of the most, maybe the most, counterintuitive battles and victory parades we've ever seen. Uh, But our first passage is going to be Matthew chapter 4. It's found on page 785 in your pew Bible. Um, Let's uh, pray together. Gracious God. Thank you again for your written word. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to gather and and worship you. Thank you for your living word that dwells within us and among us. And we ask now that you will uh, sear within our minds and within our very souls the the truth that you are the victor and and that the enemy has been defeated. Give us, build within us that, that certainty, that confidence in you. And lead us to what we need to hear and how we need to apply that together and in our own own lives. For we want to walk with you and reflect your glory in every way. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse uh, 1. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's um, being tempted um, by the devil. We'll read through it and then just touch uh, on a couple things here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. 
For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just a few things as we look at this, these events of Jesus with the enemy and the temptation that he faces and how he overcomes them. But the first thing, note in, in, verse, um, in the very beginning, the first verse, that this, this whole process, whole temptation is initiated by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. I mean, as we notice here, as we notice, as, we, uh, as Karen led us through Job last week, notice in all of these, as the enemy is working, it's still under God's sovereign control. It's never something that surprises God or that God says, oops, how did that happen? You know, it's totally under God's sovereign hand that, that the enemy still has some power as a sort of guerrilla warfare. Just taking out what he can, knowing that the ultimate war has been lost by him, but just seeking to take us out with pot shots here and there, but still under God's control. And as we'll see a little bit later, I think, too, part of this is part of Jesus in the fullness of his humanity. Remember, he is fully human and fully God. How he must grow and mature in wisdom and faith and stature. Now Luke tells us as much that that's what Jesus does because he's, he grows as any human does. And is in this situation, that ultimate preparation of the depth of his faith and trust as he's about to begin his public ministry. So the, the, the God oversees this and even, even now we can see how even temptation and things like that, God uses to form us and to transform us, to deepen us um, in here. Notice also, you see the word in verse 3, that one of the names of the devil is that he's the tempter. The enemy is a tempter. He's always working to tempt us away from the will, the plan, the heart of God. In the first temptation, you know, he comes at us with our physical desires. You know, gets him good and hungry and says, Hey, you know, you're a powerful one. You know, you're the son of God. So just take a few of these stones here, turn them into bread. I mean, don't you deserve it? I mean, you're, you're the Son of God. You, don't, you shouldn't be hungry. You're the one that created wheat. You created the whole process to make bread. So let's just satisfy that need right now. What's the big deal? And he refuses uh, to follow for his physical needs, as great as they are. Refuses to let them get in the way of obeying the, the Father. And the, the, the second temptation is one where he wants to, to give him power, where he presumes upon God. He says, you know, you're the son of God. So let's just, let's go to the temple, the, the top of the temple, the most powerful, most uh, populated place. We'll put you on the top. 
and you, you know, we, we, uh, you just fall down and God will rescue you and it will be before a whole throng of people and popularity and power will be yours. Fame will be yours for sure. You know, so why don't you go, go do that? And, and interesting in the second one, I want you to note, you know, the devil uses the Bible too. I mean, you see that he's quoting scripture, he's misquoting scripture. And Jesus, another thing to note is that Jesus goes back to the written word every time. And I'll tell you something of the importance of being in the written word and why, you know, regularly we're, we give you handouts to say this week, here are some passages that pertain to what we're talking about, how we defeat uh, the enemy and uh, give you one to, to read you know, every day to be reminded and see what God teaches you about how we face the defeated enemy. But the devil uses uh, the Bible um, for, and here's a real important point, and the reason why we have to have you know, theology, why we can't just use the Bible as a nice little precious moments book, you know, just turn it when I feel bad, or just turn to it to, to take some passage out of its context and not understand the full story, because the devil will use it. The tempter, the enemy, will use what is good for what are bad purposes. And what Jesus is about using the Scriptures to fulfill the glory of God, to obey the ways of the Father. The enemy is going to use even good stuff, like the Bible, in order to lead us away from God, in order to build His own kingdom. Like I said a couple weeks ago, the enemy is a pimp. And he is pimping anything else that he can get you to fall in love with besides Jesus. So whatever it is, he doesn't care. It doesn't have to be him. But he wants to pimp before you anything to fall in love with besides your Creator. All right, so Jesus faces the temptation of physical needs. He faces the temptation of popularity, of fame and power. And in the third temptation, he, he faces the temptation of worldly wealth and glory. You know, he takes him to the highest point. And here he uses good stuff again. The enemy uses creation. Creation is good. You know, in the beginning, God says, this is good, this is very good. Well, the enemy uses that. And he uses the splendor of creation, the problem. And, and he tells Jesus, you know, just worship me and all of this will be yours. Well, outside of that being an out-and-out lie, what, what he is doing is using the things, the good things around and the glory that they derive from God. None of us have a glory in and of themselves all of God's creation has a glory, a splendor, but it's derived from God. It, just like the Bible, it's to be used for the glory of God. And anything else then is a misuse. So the temptation here for worldly wealth and glory. You know, what, well, we have the temptation of you know, enjoying the gifts of God more than God. You know, that is, you know, I mean, that, that, I think that's sometimes like where, where our faith is like immature, it's adolescent. We enjoy, we want the gifts of God. We want health, we want wealth, we, we want, and, and God wants us to have those things. And we, we will in Him, in His time, in His way, but we want what we want when we want it. And so we want the blessings of God instead of God. It's like... Um, you know, I, I've got some adolescents in my uh, house, and when they move away, when they, when they move out of the house, they call home um, periodically, usually for money, 
computer help, tax help, or some other customer service need. You know, I mean, that's sort of what it is. They're, they're, they're at that stage where what they want, I did the same thing. You know, I mean, it's just that stage where, I, you know, yeah, I love you, love you, mom, love you, dad, but can you help me with this, 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 and this? Okay, bye. You know, and that, that might be our a good description of many of our relationship with God. We're like adolescents. We just call him for customer service. You know, he's the he- heavenly customer service desk. And that's a great temptation of the evil one where what he's bringing before Jesus in an ultimate way of here, you can have all of the goodness of God if you just will avoid God. Just make me God. But Jesus shows the power, shows his power that he has defeated the enemy even over such sly, grand temptations. And he says, get away from me. And the key thing here is in the name of Jesus, the enemy flees. And just, just see, it. we'll talk about this next week as well. But in the name of Jesus, the enemy flees. He has been defeated. He has no power in and of himself, only that which is given to him. And, God bless you, Jesus says, leave, and he's gone. Now, turn with me to Matthew 12, verses 22 through uh, 29. Just a few pages to your right, if you want to turn there. And here we'll see Jesus' power over physical, not just the spiritual, not just temptation, but over disease and over, over implied over death um, as well. Starting verse 22 of chapter 12. Then they brought to him a demoniac who was blind and mute, And he cured him, so that the one who'd been mute could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, that this fellow casts out the demons. He knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. You know, so, so see here the realization in Jesus' day of the, the, the presence of the enemy at work, even in disease, even in physical ways, and how Jesus uh, opposed them and cast the demon out in order to cure this particular person. And in so doing, incited an argument that the other religious leaders were like, hey, this guy can only have this kind of spiritual power because he's one of them. He's with the enemy. And it was Jesus says, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why is the enemy divided against the enemy? You know what I mean? That just, it doesn't work. I'm, I'm working against them. I have greater power than them. If indeed I am bringing this kind of power at work in this place at this time, 
then the kingdom of God is now upon us. The victory is upon us. It is by the Spirit of God that this is happening. So there's victory over temptation, victory even over disease. And as we know in Jesus' life later, victory even over death. Now's a good time to ask that question. Well, then why, when I, when I beat an enemy, I don't keep fighting them. You know, that, that enemy's gone. You know, when, when we win, you know, the, the enemy's gone. How come we're still then battling this enemy? Why are we still facing temptation? Why are we still facing disease? Why are we still facing death? Why are suffering and pain and still present if the victory has been won? What, what is being accomplished through that? What's the reason? What is happening? I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. See an example of the Apostle Paul who was uh, you know, one of the, the great leaders of the church. In the first century, you know, the, most, the most prominent uh, uh, writer of the New Testament, the one who was a great missionary taking the, 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 the church and the good news of the gospel all the way to the, to the ends of the earth. And he gives us a little insight as to why there were still suffering and pain that he was facing and what that meant you know, for him. In the first part of chapter 12, he talks about his visions. That God has taken him into revelation and shown him even up to the third heaven. And after sharing with that, shares with us where we pick up here in verse 6 of chapter 12. Now, now Paul's in a little bit of argument with the church in Corinth. They're, um, he, he's trying to affirm to them that he is a disciple of Christ and he's worth listening to. And so it, it starts to sound like he's boasting, like he's you know, presenting his resume in, in arrogance. And so he, uh, he addresses that. Verse 6. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me. Even considering the exceptional character of the revelations, those revelations that he had where God took him to see things that no other human had seen. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Because he'd had such grand experiences, it was allowed for a messenger of the enemy to come and put some kind of thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that thorn is. You, you can read all kinds of stipulations, uh, guesses as to what that might be, but we don't know. But it was something that was within him to keep him humble. To keep him faithful. To keep him focused on God and not on the blessings of God. 
to keep him from being too elated as to caught up in those revelations and in the visions that God had given him, the insight that he'd given him to share and lead the church in that day. Verse 8. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. It says, Paul, I'm not going to take that away from you. Because what I need for you is to grow more and more powerful. And for you to be more and more powerful means you need to be more, you need to be weaker and weaker. Because power for you means that you recognize the sufficiency of my grace and not your great intellect or your, your revelations or the wisdom that I've given you or the experiences you've had. What will make you great is your weakness so that you find everything you need in me. So, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. God, in God's providence and wisdom and power, as the, the victor, uh, allows for allows for the enemy continue to be at work to provide that kind of resistance that builds strength in faith and hope and trust and love. Uses the one that opposes him in order to fulfill his purpose in us. To be dependent in love for Him. That's why then we still live in this time, in this in-between time, this in-between time of Christ's first coming and His second. This in-between time where, yes, the kingdom has come already, but it's not yet come in its fullness. It provides us that space and that resistance in order for us to grow deeper and deeper and find that strength in weakness that God's grace is sufficient in every and all ways. Well, how? How then has this victory been won? Was it just by acclamation? Was it just God said it so it happened? No, it was what... God did in Christ. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Verse 13. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive 
together with Him when He forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. So it's at the cross that Paul is speaking here. And it's at the cross that the devil is defeated. It's at the cross that the victory parade begins. Because at the cross, in verse 13, we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in the ways we had disobeyed God. And God made us alive by taking, by taking our rap sheet, in a sense. By taking what was written against us in our own sins, the way that we had disobeyed God, the, way, the list of our crimes against God. He took that list, what was written against us, And there he wiped it away. He obliterated. He caused it to vanish at the cross into nothing. The very thing that separates us from God, our own brokenness, our own sin, our own evil, now Jesus took at the cross and totally obliterated it to where it was gone, where it was gone. And so the one thing that the devil doesn't want to happen for God's people to be in relationship with God, now Jesus has accomplished by dying on the cross and obliterating the sins that we have done, past, present, and future. And in that moment, he then verse 15 He disarms, as it says here, he disarms the rulers and the authority. He exposes, in other translations, he undresses the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities. This is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 when he says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of spiritual heavenly beings. Of evil. that Those principalities and powers. At the cross, Jesus exposes them. He undresses them. He, he makes a mockery of them. Because He has accomplished cleansing God's people and uniting God with God's people for all of eternity. He turns the world upside down. This is the essential truth of the entire universe. I mean, this is a dense full, heavy, weighty statement of the spiritual reality, of the reality of the entire cosmos. Where the celebration begins with a naked man on a cross with nails in his hands and nails in his feet and a spear in his side. And you're saying that he exposes and undresses the enemy, of the great enemy of God while he is hanging on the cross? He turns the world upside down there. It should be the other way according to the ways of the world because it's the one who has no clothes on with nails in him who seems helpless who is demonstrating great power, the greatest power. And somehow that is the victory parade over sin and death. Jesus won the victory He demonstrates, He leads the victory parade. Not by accumulating power or popularity. 
Not by accumulating fortune or fame. Not by accumulating money or mansions. He didn't win any championships. He didn't build any business. He didn't even lead a megachurch. So how in the world does Jesus hanging on a cross with a loincloth draped upon him lead a victory parade? It's because he fulfilled the fullness of God's glory as he gave away power. As he gave away fame. As he gave away money and mansions hanging on the cross. The champion, the victor, the conqueror is the one who leads this celebration as a 33-year-old carpenter who lived the life of sacrificial love for his heavenly Father in total complete surrender and sacrificial love for God's people and creation like you and me. That's the victory parade. That Jesus defeats the enemy at every temptation. He defeats the enemy who brings pain and suffering, who brings accusations and shame, who demeans us in our disobedience. Jesus has won the victory. He has shown us the ultimate power of sacrificial love for the Father and for the Father's creation. The victory of faith, hope, and love are sure. What rules the universe is not political power or worldly wealth, but it is a faith and a hope and a trust in God, our almighty, heavenly Father. So we gather every Sunday to join in that victory parade. We gather every Sunday to worship Him, the One who is the victor, hanging on the cross, dying for us, and being raised to show Him as the crucified Lord, the servant King. And He has won the victory in faith and trust and love. And we celebrate that every time that we gather. As we gather today around the table, this is a victory feast. This is a victory celebration of the body and blood of Christ who leads that victory parade. We we gather at this time and we have healing stations where elders will be among us. And in victory, we will be fighting and praying against the temptation and the suffering and the pain and the struggle that we face. Longing for God, to, to, for His kingdom to show itself now, to relinquish us from that. But if that not be His will, then we join with Jesus in the garden who says, not my will, but Your will be done. We join with Paul and we say, Your grace is sufficient. And we know a day will come when total, complete healing will be ours when He returns. And a day will come when temptation will be totally obliterated and we will walk with God in perfect unity. But in light of that victory that we know is upon us, we seek His victory and His kingdom now in our lives. So we have healing stations. 
that are before us. I'm going to ask that the elders who will be in those, at those healing stations, they'll go and take their, their place. And they'll invite you in a moment um, to go to those uh, um, healing stations. Um, we'll have uh, communion in the healing stations. They go on at the same time. What you say there um, will stay there with the person you share and the ears of God as we, we seek God's victory to be at work in our lives today. Don't uh, we come boldly before God? Again, not because of anything we bring, but because of the victor, the victory that Christ has accomplished on the cross and that we celebrate at this table. Let's pray together. Gracious God, that we thank you for Jesus. And we, we ask now that you will meet us in this time, in this celebration feast, Lord, that you will, as the bread nourishes our body and the cup nourishes our body, that, that you will, in the power of your Spirit, nourish our soul. You will deepen our faith. You will strengthen our rootedness in you. You will fill us with more and more of your grace and love and hope and truth in ways beyond our understanding, that you will lead us in maturity in you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.